the Sunday Night Health Show podcast, where Dr. Jason Kinderchuk explains how Paxlovid works for COVID-19 and why some people have never even gotten COVID-19. Another gentleman shares his story on living with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And as if multiple sclerosis isn't devastating enough, it also has the nerve to impact bladder, bowel, and sexual health. And I'd like to talk about money, because money's a big issue in relationships and in life, and who's rich, and what is happiness, and who are those rich people anyway? The answer might surprise you. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Well, you've heard it before. You've heard it many, many times. COVID enters a household, whether through a child, a parent, a sibling, a caretaker. And it's despite of extensive exposure, nobody gets sick. And it is a much more common occurrence than some people think. In fact, the U.S. reports that more than 80 million coronavirus cases have occurred in that country. And that is likely an underestimate. And experts estimate that more than half of Americans have yet to get coronavirus. I have always felt if I make this statement, I am tempting fate, but I am one of those people who has managed to avoid coronavirus. Joining me on the line once again to discuss this and other subjects is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He's assistant professor in Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. He's also an associate professor, Department of Biochemistry at the College of Medicine and Allied Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you? I'm doing good, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. I also don't like to ask people <laughs> if they've had COVID either um, because I feel it's, it's private information. And I'm not asking you, but I've just disclosed that I haven't. But I also feel like <laughs> I'm going to get it tomorrow <laughs> yeah. if I said that. Listen, we, we, we actually, we talked about this uh, today. We've got, uh, you know, another, uh, yet, yet again, another situation with, uh, you know, with our three and a half year old where she's been sick again this, you know, the, the past day and a half you know, with symptoms that, that are, you know, cold-like or, or influenza-like or early in, in the illness. And, of course, your mind, of course, goes to COVID right away. She's tested, I don't know, we've tested her 13 or 14 times now over two years. She's never gone positive. And, and you know, within our household, we, we have not had a positive yet. Um, but there is that sense every day of, oh, it's, you know, yes, we're, we feel fortunate about that, but we're also kind of like, oh, when, when is the, the, you know, the pin going to drop, so to speak? Uh, because it's, it's tough going out there, especially with, uh, you know, game with the, the removal of uh, certainly a lot of protections for young kids still not having a vaccine. Um, you are in that position of kind of waiting to, to see when COVID eventually shows up. I think that's how a lot of people feel right now. That's exactly right. And, and you know, um, you, you know, some people just don't seem to get it. And I've, I've heard that from many, many people that I know, they'll say, you know, I should have gotten it. My, my grandmother's entire yep. assisted living or, you know, nursing home was infected and I went to visit her and, and I didn't get it. Or I've been in, in different situations. I have, you know, one of my um, relatives, sister-in-law's family, 
um, all of her children have had it twice and one has had it three times. And, you know, I compare her to my family where we've had one who has gotten it and it was an outside exposure, to be honest with you. But this, it's the only way we seem to be able to track that down. Um, But, you know, I wonder sometimes, you know, they talked early on about blood type and in particular O positive people. Hello, I'm O positive. (laughs) But correlation does not mean causation. Um, But in in genetics, could it be genetics that for some reason their family and and, and quite frankly, the parents have had it as well. (laughs) So, So here over on this team. One out of, you know, six and on the other team, five out of five. Um, so, you know, you, you, you've got to wonder how, why is it yeah. that some people get it and others don't? You know, it, it's certainly something that, you know, I, again, I, you know, we've talked about it a few times, you know, my, my experiences in, in West Africa during uh, the Ebola epidemic, we, we had days where, you know, we would get an entire families our entire households that would, uh, you know, that we would get basically on our manifest for testing. And you would have, you know, five out of six or six out of seven of the family members, all positive and all, you know, very, very low CTs, which would mean that they were extremely sick uh, or, or were going to become extremely sick, very likely. And you'd have one person in the family that was negative. Um, there, there is that, that precedent that's been set across different diseases. We've seen it in smallpox, we've seen it in influenza, we've seen it in Ebola, we've seen it here. Um, and it's a variety of factors, right? It's certainly genetics and underlying biology probably play a role, and it, it can be uh, differences in terms of um, you know, a, a single mutation sometimes in, in individuals. Uh, it can be age, it can be some of those different factors. It can be uh, that we start getting into the amount of exposure and, of course, the types of exposure that that person may have undergone, it's extremely complicated. And I think the, the way that we end up having to, to kind of view it is this discussion of, yeah, listen, COVID is everywhere. The likelihood is over time, we are all going to get exposed. Um, but exposure does not equal infection. And infection requires a lot of different factors to, to occur. So we, when we don't get infected, um, we can't believe that we are now somehow super immune and, and you know, we, we are now unbelievably resilient. It can be different factors that are playing into that. Um, it's good. It's, it's a good thing to have going for, for us as individuals. Um, but you got to keep it going uh, because you also don't know uh, what, what the factors were that, uh, that have, um, you know, led up to, to this point of not getting infected. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, um, there, I'm a, I'm a slight bit nervous because I have a friend who is um, sick <laughs> right now, it claims to be one of those super immune people, has been exposed mm-hmm. to, you know, multiple times and hasn't gotten it, and now has classic COVID-19 symptoms, sore throat, cough, runny nose, but still in denial. <laughs> um, we'll be getting tested tomorrow, I believe. Still in a bit of denial, feeling that they're run down. And I did see this person and I, I feel like I'm a better, a more compliant mask wearer than this person is. And uh, so I don't know. And so when I see this person and I'm wearing a mask and they're not, and then they put it on. um, But you know, how many times has this person been out in the world, you know, without their mask, you know, so maybe, but I feel like, "Mm, you know what, it's this particular variant is so transmissible 
that um, just maybe, just maybe it's got me. <laughs> Not that I have any symptoms. I don't. Um, beyond my normal fatigue. Yeah. Um, but if you have any symptoms out there or any questions, and especially if it relates to this, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Or you can text me there as well because you seem to like to do that. Um, so... Anyway, I don't know, but I this is I have been nervous before, and I've certainly had minor symptoms. Mainly, it's psychosomatic, completely and totally, which is why I bring psychiatrists onto the show as well. <laughs> um, but if I hear of somebody that I know who's tested positive, I think, oh, is that a runny nose? I sneezed. Oh, do I have a cough? And and I test fairly frequently, so yep. I'll know. But I get a little bit of test anxiety. Um, but what are, what is the idea, you know, what, what are researchers thinking about, you know, those who have not gotten COVID-19? Where's the research headed? Well, the, the research is headed is trying to, you know, certainly identify what, what this factor is. Listen, I, I work in a department which for the better part of three decades has been investigating this uh, within uh, sex workers uh, in Kenya, right? We, we have um, you know, a, a very close collaboration with uh, with sex workers that uh, seem to have an immunity to HIV. Um, this is a big question mark, right? I, you know, why why do you have this you know cohort of people who are unbelievably um, uh, you know susceptible in the sense of the the behaviors that that, that they undertake, um, but have not caught this virus that we know is extremely transmissible through, uh, through sexual intercourse. That's, that's a big question. So uh, I think we're going to be following in COVID what have people been following for years in HIV of trying to understand what are the factors? What are the individual factors? Are there, uh, you know, certain similarities amongst people across different populations? Is it uh, based within specific populations? I, I don't have an answer, but it's going to be probably a pretty big area. And it, do they have an idea? Do you do you think like <sighs> leaning toward genetics, leaning toward people who are protective? I mean, people who have told yeah. me that all they did was stay inside and still yeah. got COVID nineteen and wore their mask even when they were outdoors. But then you know that contradicts their story that they only stayed inside. But a lot of people will say that I never go out. And I'm like, well, do you go to the supermarket? Do you go to the gas station? Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you go and no, we're avoiding the gas station these days because of the price of gas. But <laughs> you know, to, to but, me, I think it's going to be the it'll be really the populations where uh, we have high susceptibility. So certainly, I think you want to look within those groups where you would expect to see um, you know really high rates of transmission. So congregate settings. Or, or certainly uh, uh, age or underlying health factors, those that are most prone to severe disease, and start to try to tease apart. Or, or have you seen groups uh, or have seen uh, you know, similarities in populations um, or, or different you know, regional uh, similarities where there have been people that should have likely had a very high uh, incidence of, of disease or, or severe disease, and they have simply not shown that? Um, I, I think that's probably where it's going to be started. Genetics will certainly likely play a, a piece in this. Um, but then it's going to be, again, this idea of behaviors and uh, and, and just other underlying um, differences or similarities uh, there as well. It's, it's, it's a vast field. And, and how much stock do you place in blood type? Um, you know, I think, it, I think it potentially plays a role. But I, I think that, again, when we look at all of this, it's kind of like, you know, I go back to, uh, you know, to, to Dr. Keith Folk and Frank Plummer and, and those folks that have been working on the HIV story for so many years. 
I think it's going to be uh, probably a um, a multitude, or, or sorry, I should say multifactorial, where it likely is uh, a few different things that are all playing a part in this. So blood type may be playing a role, but there are probably other factors as well that, that are underlying that too. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is on the line, and we are talking COVID. And we have Catherine, a caller on the line from Surrey, British Columbia. Good evening, Catherine. Hi, I I have multiple chemical sensitivities in extreme, and I can't take medications a lot. The only thing I can handle is Advil very rarely. What would you advise me to take to build up my immune system? Mm. Yeah, well. <laughs> I, I, I hear Maureen's answer. Uh, Blank. Yeah, I mean that that that's kind of where where I sit with this as well, right? And I, I've been, you know, I, I do not only science on, uh, you know, as part of my life, but I've been doing, you know, bodybuilding and, and natural powerlifting stuff for years. I, you know, you know, I I went through and, and and you know went through the gamut of different products when I was in my younger years, uh, hoping to get an edge. And, and ultimately, what I found is. Honestly, it comes down for me at least to, to basic nutrition and basic health of, of doing the things that we traditionally do to, to keep ourselves uh, up and, and keep our immune systems up, to be quite honest with you. But Maureen may have some, some other thoughts, though. No, I, I really don't. I have, <laughs> I, I've drawn a blank here, but I agree with you. Uh, adequate sleep, exercise, good yep. nutrition. Don't mingle with the public, wear your mask. Um, will protect you against and, and help your immune system to function uh, optimally. Yep. Um, potentially, but uh, no, I don't have anything else for you, Catherine. I'm sorry, but prevention is often the best medicine. But keeping yeah. on the subject of masks, which I mentioned again, I guess that's my subject. How many, or text message from a, a listener, how many times can an N95 be worn if you use a disposable coffee filter inside? And I do believe that the coffee filter was amongst some of, um, dare I say, the name Trump. Trump's suggestion in and amongst sca- uh, scarves, which uh, failed big time. But um, I, I, Dr. Kinderchuk, do you want to weigh in on this around oh. microparticles, which their coffee filters are great at filtering, but um, breathability scale. So, uh, yeah, I mean, for, for, for N95s, you know, there is basically there has been some discussion on, on reuse. I, and I can't remember the exact statistics, but there was some data that came out from Health Canada, from Public Health Agency of Canada, as well as from the CDC in the U.S., on recommendations, and it was more so for uh, for, for healthcare workers during the, the early parts of 2020 when N95s were uh, really, really low on, on supply list. Um, I, I would go back to, to seek those out uh, to, to get specific recommendations on, uh, on, on what the frequency of reuse can be and, and also what storage conditions should be. Thank you to Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, who's not only joined me on the program, but has agreed to stay a little bit longer so we can continue the COVID-19 conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Kinderchuk. I almost called you Dr. COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please don't. (laughs) I'm losing it. (laughs) Oh, I've lost it ages ago. But anyway, um, I also wanted to say to anybody out there, if you would like your questions answered about COVID-19, feel free to give us a call, the number to call is one 399 That's one 399 You can text me there as well. Uh, so as I mentioned, Dr. Kinderchuk, I, I have a friend now patient um, who was, was actually had thought that they, they kept calling me <laughs> repeatedly because they kept thinking that they had uh, COVID-19. And 
they didn't for, you know, two months, really. And then, then, you know, radio silence, no calls, no questions about it. And all of a sudden becomes, it, it seemed to hit him broadside. Um, he called me and said he'd been diagnosed with uh, COVID-19. And he had two days where he had severe symptoms, headache and um, must, body aches and, and fever. And then he said he turned the corner. And then the fourth day, he got violently ill and actually had shortness of breath. And so he has this entire constellation of symptoms. But, you know, for a day, he felt like he was getting better. Is, is this typical of the COVID-19 virus that it, um, you know, can make your, your symptoms, you know, change over time and even get better and then get worse? I, you know, again, as a non-physician, from a, from certainly from the things that I've seen, uh, it doesn't seem to be typical that that you know the the data, at least that as it's been presented for uh, you know for kind of you know clinical symptoms and and clinical spectrum of disease, that you see kind of this traditional trajectory where you know symptoms start to increase and then you basically hit uh, a symptom peak, and that may or may not correlate with uh, with the amount of virus being at its peak as well in your respiratory tract, and then everything starts to either settle back down or it goes into a more moderate or, or severe disease. So you don't tend to see the, the ebbs and flows, um, but it's also not completely unheard of either. And I think that's the big question of, you know, what what is basically pushing the virus from going, you know, into that kind of lull and then allowing it to to start to kind of amp back up. And I think that's, again, you, you know, you talk about the idea of people that um, appear to be, you know, kind of, you know, hyper immune in a way to to this virus. Um, I think this is the second part of saying, well, what are the the causal mechanisms that that underlie this kind of brief reprieve? And then, uh, you know, and then this really uh, you know, kind of much stronger wave of, of illness that follows. Right. And I just wondered if it and I, I was meaning I, I realize you're not a medical doctor, but um, just play one on the radio. That's okay. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, we all do. Uh, we all play it on Facebook too, Twitter as well. Um, but no, I was just sort of curious because his symptoms were, um, you know, like headache and body aches, that kind of thing. And then, you know, getting much, much better. And then his symptoms were nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, weakness, and shortness of breath. And I just wondered if the virus, if viruses in general behave in a way that they may manifest um, a variety of symptoms or different symptoms at different oh, times. They, I mean, they definitely can, right? And certainly, you know, again, we, we look back at, you know, at, at things like smallpox, we look back at things like, you know, Ebola, all these different viruses. And I throw these out because these are things that, you know, I've, I've got a, you know, kind of, kind of a, a strong history in, but also because they're, they're also fairly different from one another. Yet we see that there are these, uh, these kind of patterns within different people where you do see different types of, of classical illness. It does not always follow the traditional trajectory. And I think that's probably the bigger lesson with all of this is saying, listen, we're seeing, you know, millions upon millions of cases. Um, those rare events or those events that maybe are not even rare, but are, are somewhat, uh, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, lower percentage events than others with, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, you may not see those, but now you get into millions that extend that over two years. Now you start to see, um, you know, some of those, uh, some of those events, um, you know, presenting. And, and that is the big question is what are the differences in those rarities as compared to the kind of traditional uh, disease that we see? 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, um, so I suggested that he, I, I'd actually suggested that he uh, see his physician, you know, yep. one of the three days before, and he decided to delay, true to the mail form, <laughs> delay that. And then on the fourth day on a weekend, you know, of course, he wants me to <laughs> call in my connections <laughs> yep. uh, because he's desperate now and he feels he's scared. He's, he's weak, he tells me. And um, in addition to the other symptoms, but then he said that he, uh, uh, he didn't tell me this actually for some strange reason, but um, he actually, probably because I would have told him to go to the emergency department, but so I I hooked him up with a physician friend (laughs) on a Saturday uh, who prescribed Paxlovid for him, the oral Mm -hmm. antiviral medication. And then when, uh, you know, when the, I later learned that he'd also had shortness of breath. Um, yep. now I, I really don't know how bad, and I didn't get into it with him. I mean, at certain times you're, you know, just leaving it to the care of, of the physician and, and stepping back as, as the friend. Um, I don't want to step outside of my, of my zone. Um, but, uh, tell me about Paxlovid and it's, it's being increasingly used. I'm hearing people, uh, because people are actually getting sicker with this variant, it seems to me. That's just anecdotal, um, but uh, but also perhaps pe- people are reaching for it, wanting it. Yeah, I mean, also there's there's a few things at play, right? I mean, uh, one is that I, I think the early data that suggested that Omicron was less severe than what we saw with with Delta or or other variants potentially that that data has started to come into question, right? As we've seen more and more cases, and certainly we've started to be able to take better appreciation of underlying immunity and prior exposure. Um, you know what? The disease severity doesn't look to be that different, which means that Omicron has not really shifted to become a less virulent form of, of this virus. So but we're, we're still well within the throes of this. Um, Paxlovid is, you know, it's, it's a therapeutic that is meant to try and, and drive down the ability of the virus to be able to create copies of itself. So what happens is you get infected, the virus gets into your cells, and it, it basically uses your machinery within your cells to create copies of itself. Viruses require uh, that that uh, that that aspect. They're not like bacteria where they can self-replicate. So um, what Paxlovid does is it, it basically disrupts that ability. So if we think about people that you know, uh, you know, I'm old, so thinking about things like you know models when I was a kid and making models. You used to open up the model pack and you'd have all of your pieces stuck together uh, in uh, in these kind of plastic webs and you'd have to pop them out. Well, Paxlovid basically stops you from being or from the virus from being able to pop mm. those pieces out to create the model um so that's that's a good thing um the downside is is that certainly we uh you know we've seen not a lot of use of it um you have to use it quickly so within the first five days of illness that's not always mm-hmm. so easy especially those early uh signs of illness may not be uh you know very uh you know very pronounced um, and then there's this also this aspect of there have been people that have taken this and after five days, they go and, you know, they gain, they see this reprieve from the virus, but they get off Paxlovid and now they start to, uh, to, to get hit again. Part of this is that, you know, as soon as you take the drug, it doesn't mean that you knock, uh, you know, 100% of the virus out of your system. You may not. Viruses are very good at creating copies of themselves very quickly. So if you are not able to knock out all the virus, um, there is a potential that if you come off the drug, that you may be able to uh, be back in a position where the, the virus starts to take off again. Um, and, and that certainly is something that, you know, that we need to watch. And certainly we're concerned about 
uh, in regards to whether or not there are other um, uh, mutations that occur within the virus during that time period, what that looks like across different individuals. Um, but those, those studies uh, continue to be ongoing. It's a good drug. We just need to be able to get it out to people in a timely fashion so they can use it in a time frame when it's required or when it's needed to be used. Uh, very interesting. And that's that rebound COVID, is, it, is yeah. that the um, term? That yeah, yeah, that's, with, that's um, the rebound thing. You know, yeah. It is. And, and again, when it gets back to this idea that, you know, we, we're hearing more and more about these discussions of things like rebound. Well, part of this is that, you know, you're going to see these types of events when you have millions upon millions of people that are getting infected. So the, the likelihood is that these are quite rare events, but they can occur. And we're just seeing them be more pronounced because the numbers are, are basically allowing uh, those events to seem more typical than they, than they normally would be. Right, right. And, and I do want to say that COVID is for people, although studies are ongoing, for those under the age of 12, um, Paxlovid is for anyone ages 12 and over who weighs at least 88 pounds and is at high risk for severe disease. We don't know who's at high risk for de- severe disease. This is a little bit of a crapshoot here um, as because some people, um, I was listening to a podcast and it was, you know, an honoring of the uh, 40,000 Canadians who have died due to COVID in the last two years and the 1 million Americans. And people were talking about their friends and relatives and they were, you know, 27, 45, 53, yeah. 70, you know, um, all over the map. And so it's difficult to know. I, I get is. very. Go ahead. It, it, it is. I'll just say I, I get very frustrated when, uh, certainly in, in in some of the uh, some of the litigation I've been involved in, where you know you you hear this kind of you know this conjecture of saying, well, you know those that that are at greatest risk for severe disease are are in high age brackets or or are elderly. Yeah, that that's part of the question. But what that tends to uh, to to not address is all the other conditions. That, that are related to severe disease, intellectual developmental disabilities. Uh, in the U.S., there was a study that showed they, you know, people that had IDD were the second uh, highest risk group for, for severe disease. That was above other uh, chronic underlying right. um, health conditions like cancer. These are things we don't typically talk about, but you know what? That's a lot of people. Um, and then you start looking at all the underlying health conditions, and you look at certainly the, the racial and ethical uh, inequities of, of this uh, disease, and then you add in people live in congregate settings and people in low socioeconomic status. It isn't as easy as being able to look at 10 different people and say, okay, those, those two people are at greatest risk for severe disease. No, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Uh, it, it certainly is. I mean, you know, I, I do know a number of people who have gotten COVID, and um, it's just, you know, there's just no rhyme or reason to it, you know, really. And it, and it's mostly, you know, younger people that I'm uh, dealing with or know who've had it, and it would be, you know, 55 years of age and younger. Um, so yeah. between that, you know, the mostly in kind of the 30s to 40s uh, range and um, at low 50s maybe, but then some 20s, some outliers. But you know what? You it's just amazing. Those who you think are just going to do quite well actually don't, um, you know, really struggle for four or five days. You know, the worst flu that they've ever had, it's been described as, and, and you know, they might be 30 years old. Um, so you just don't know. But I think that uh, Paxlovid is probably the beginning of a game changer. It's really the only, uh, it's the only one. It's the first and only efficacious oral antiviral pill for this virus. And it does 
demonstrate uh, a clear benefit, and especially in preventing hospitalization and death, along with, dare I say the word vaccine, vaccine and the boosters. Yep. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Paxlovid showed an 89% reduction yep. in the risk of hospitalization and death in, in recent clinical trials. Um, well, we, so we need therapeutics, right? And, and I think that, you know, we, early on, the one thing that, that really helped us in, in you know, being able to reduce the number of people that, uh, that, that ultimately succumb to this disease um, was corticosteroids, right? And, and that supportive care strategy. Mm-hmm. Now you also have, but that was something that was late uh, for, for late use, right? Now you have something that's early use in a therapeutic. The biggest thing to me is we've got to make the access equitable. So it's great to have it. You don't want to see it expiring on shelves. You don't want to see it being, uh, you know, going unused. But we need to be able to find a mechanism to get it to those, especially those communities and, and those populations that have been, uh, uh, you know, undeservedly hard hit uh, by, by this disease. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk has so graciously stayed with me the, for the hour this evening. Uh, the number to call if you have a question for Dr. Kinderchuk, one 399 that's one 399 You can call or text. So going back to that question we had earlier on, Dr. Kinderchuk, how many times can an N95 be worn if you use a disposable coffee filter inside? And we talked about breathability and filter filtration and filterability. And um, so that person um, texted back, actually, and said that, if I can grab the text... <laughs> The technology, yeah, for some reason I can't read it. But anyway, I, I did, I've read it already and I do recall what they said, that they said no issues with breathing um, using the coffee filter. And so they, they're using it to keep the KN95 mask clean. Um, so, I mean, you know, I realize that KN95 masks are expensive and, you know, times are tough these days and, and I want to be practical. And so my initial thought is, you know, the, in, in clinical trials that, that the, the coffee filter was not deemed as an effective um, part, component of a do-it-yourself mask. And, um, but, you know, this person wants to keep their KN95, inside of their KN95 mask clean. I get it. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult, right? And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, during, during the break, I was kind of going through and looking up, you know, what, what I could find for, uh, you know, for studies that have looked at, at the effectiveness of, of different um, household uh, filters and other materials. Lately, some coffee filters have been tested. They have, um, you know, certainly they, they have an ability to, to filter out, uh, you know, particles, um, you know, fairly efficiently. Not not to the same degree as what we've seen with N95s, but certainly more so than uh, than fabric materials. It becomes a question in regards to, um, I would say, not so much the ultimate filtration capacity, but more so. Uh, uh, the kind of processing of it, right? So we think about this idea in, in a lab. You know, we, we always are, are concerned with, okay, well, what, you know, what are we touching? How are we removing things? How mm-hmm. are we, you know, we call donning and doffing, take, putting on and, and taking off, uh, you know, our, our personal protective equipment, those kinds of things. You have the question of um, the reliability, right? So if you're using, um, you know, a, a coffee filter on the on the inside of the N95, you, you first of all get the question of saying, okay, what, what does that do in regards to the fit of, of the N95 or the KN95? Um, do you still get the same, um, the same type of seal that's being built uh, around your face with that? Um, and a big part is going to be that the question of, has there been uh, good con- conclusive evidence to say, yes, the filtration capacity for that is still, uh, is still maintained 
with with the N95 uh-huh. or the KN95. I think that's a big question. And then, of course, you know, uh, you know how you're touching it, how you're, uh, you know, how you're game donning and doffing. Um, but I would go back to again to certainly public health agency and, and CDC for some of their recommendations for what uh, what they have recommended for people for multiple use of N95s and KN95s in regards to storage. Um, as well as uh, uh, intervals for uh, for ensuring that uh, that that they were that they were fairly clean. Absolutely, and, and some of the basic things just around masking um, is you know if you sneeze into it or cough into a mask, you should change it. You should clean your hands yeah. while you're donning and doffing as well. Um, you know, using you, it. I mean, loops. I think the seat. Yeah, so use the lubes. Don't don't touch the front of your mask if you can help it. Um, and you know, I think the CDC thought that everybody was, um, you know, had their had it stored in a paper bag and they washed their hands yeah. before and after. And you know, we we uh, the the truth is we're we're looking for our mask under the seat of our cars, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's all crumpled up. And yeah. There is, there is an absolute practical aspect and, and even in, in hospitals. I mean, I was joking with one of the doctors that I work with and I said, you know, you've used the same mask for three weeks and it was the one you took out of the garbage can <laughs> that I threw away <laughs> and uh, hasn't gotten COVID. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Kinderchuk, thank you so much as usual for joining me. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Maureen. We talk lots about different medical conditions, and there's one that is has piqued my interest, in part because it was Pulmonary Hypertension Day, World Pulmonary Hypertension Day this week. We also have just come off the heels of Mental Health Awareness Week. Pulmonary hypertension is characterized by high blood pressure in the pulmonary arteries, the blood vessels that carry blood to the lungs. Pulmonary hypertension, or PH, means that the blood pressure in the arteries that carry blood in the lungs is too high. The excessive pressure is usually caused by restriction or blockage in the blood vessels. PH can cause the heart to work harder and lead to heart failure. It's a serious disease that can be life-threatening. There have been new developments in terms of treatment options, and they have certainly progressed in recent years. But many people with PH in Canada continue to spend two to three years seeking an accurate diagnosis. And that is alarming because without treatment, the average life expectancy of a person with PH is less than three years. Joining me on the line to talk about pulmonary hypertension is Carl Seltzer, a person who is living with the condition pulmonary hypertension or PH. Good evening, Carl. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I love to raise awareness about conditions. Now, um, pulmonary hypertension, I just gave a description of it, but who does pulmonary hypertension affect? Well, it affects, it, it can affect everyone, pr- uh, primarily uh, women, but uh, there is percentages of us guys that have it as well. And, you know, it goes everywhere from, from children all the way to, uh, right up to seniors. So it, it, it covers a wide variety of, of people uh, age-wise, for sure. Wow. And so it takes, often takes people two to three years to actually get an accurate diagnosis. Why is that? Well, you know, and, and as a patient, this is just, you know, my personal opinion and, and talking with other, other patients is, is in our healthcare system. Obviously, we want to 
rule out things as we go along trying to get a diagnosis. And, and often pH isn't really even considered in the diagnosis as they're looking at other reasons why, you know, a person you know, short, has shortness of breath or edema building up in their legs and things like that. So, you know, we have a little bit of a catchphrase called, you know, sometimes it can be pH. And so a lot of the work that that uh, patient advocacy groups do and, and the association itself and people with PA is to, is to as well as patient education and support, which is huge, especially during the pandemic, uh, but is also to reach out to, to the doctors and say, you know what, don't forget to, to check for pH. And so that's why sometimes it can take a couple of years. Also, um, geographically as well, if you're in a major center, usually there's a pH clinic and, and a pH team that are readily available if you happen to be living, uh, you know, way up north or something. Sometimes the, uh, the, the medical community just isn't quite up on the, the whole idea of pH. And so that's why sometimes it can take a while. Right. And it's estimated that approximately 5,000 Canadians have been diagnosed with pH or pulmonary hypertension, but some of the figures suggest that it's twice that many um, people. And you, you mentioned a couple of the symptoms, shortness of breath and edema, but some of the other symptoms are fatigue and loss of energy, chest pain, bluish lips or hands or feet, dizziness upon activity, including walking, which is a very basic activity or climbing the stairs and fainting or syncope. Did you experience those symptoms before your diagnosis? Pretty much everyone you just described, Maureen. Uh, I came off of, uh, of a cancer stem cell transplant in March 1st of 2018 and uh, was, you know, was working through all the side effects of extended chemo and all the rest of it when I started developing some of these exact symptoms that you're talking about. I was shortness of breath, uh, couldn't climb the stairs. Uh, you know, if I raised my arms above shoulder height, I would, uh, you know, I'd start getting tunnel vision and have to grab onto something because I was about ready to, you know, pass out. And blue lips, absolutely, I was pale in color. But, you know, a foolish me, uh, I was thinking this was all part of, you know, the, the another problem that goes along with cancer. And I knew I had an appointment coming up with an oncologist, and I put it off a little longer sh- than I should have. And as soon as I got into that appointment, I was, in the, I was admitted into hospital that afternoon, and they started working on me right away. So, absolutely, those were uh, the symptoms that I was experiencing. That is incredible. And so how long did it take for you to get your diagnosis? Two weeks. Oh, so in, a, in a way you were one of the lucky ones, if you will. <laughs> I, if you will, yes, absolutely. I was one of the lucky ones. Once they got me into hospital and tried to figure out what I was doing, but they ran through the same process that someone, you know, that most people go through. I mean, they were checking me for, for more obvious causes of what was going on. Was it graft versus host disease? Was it this? Was it that? And they were running through the raft of tests. And they were doing a great job, but uh, I was at a point where it wasn't, where the shortness of breath and everything wasn't an annoyance. It was, it was life-threatening. Like I, I, I jumped into that both feet. And so I was lucky enough that by the end of that two-week procedure, there was an actual, there was an actual pH clinic here at Vancouver General Hospital where I was. And they brought the the pH team up right away and they did the appropriate tests, which included a right heart cath. And um, that's when I got the diagnosis and uh, they brought me in my IV pump about the day after and life went on. 
I mean, it's just incredible what you've been through having a cancer diagnosis and actually, you know, your mind is probably on cancer, never thinking that something like pulmonary hypertension is about to come your way. Like most people, Maureen, I had never heard of, of TH. Uh, right. Never even crossed my mind. I thought this was cancer related and, and, you know, and then when they came in and with that team and said, well, you have well, pulmonary arterial hypertension, uh, that's when my ears pricked up and it was like, what the heck now? But uh, you know what? They treated me well. I'm still here. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that's kind of my story short form. Well, I have to say you sound as healthy as a horse <laughs> there. I mean, you sound like you have energy, no fatigue, shortness of breath, any of those symptoms. So what has been your treatment? Uh, the treatment is I'm on a I'm on a, an, an IV pump, which is uh, administers a drug called Carapult. That's what I'm on. Uh, and it's administered through a Hickman, Hickman line. Of course, you know what a Hickman line is, but it is a, a tube in my chest that goes into the top part of the heart and delivers that blood, uh, sorry, bl- delivers the medicine uh, 24-7. And, uh, you know, I, there's some maintenance. I have to switch out pumps and all the rest of it. And that's what the treatment is, as well as I'm on a, a couple oral meds, Zerka, that I take in the evenings as well. So that's that's the, the medicine side of the treatment. Uh, of course, dealing with the side effects and everything else is, is a whole different ball of wax, I guess. Of course, and the side effects um, can be, you know, it almost for some medications, almost as bad as the illness it, itself. Um, I wanted to mention the 2021 Canadian Pulmonary Hypertension Community Survey Summary Report. It was conducted from May 5th to July 5th, 2021 for patients and caregivers, and then from June 26th to September 20th, 2021 for PH healthcare professionals. And the goal of that survey was to me- measure the physical, social, financial, emotional, and psychological impacts faced by Canadian pulmonary hypertension community or or patients. Um, And uh, 305 patients responded, 77 were caregivers, 24 healthcare professionals. And and some of the outcomes were that, um, you know, 42% felt fearful or frightened. 42% avoided leaving home, including for essential travel. 40% had no desire to socialize. 37% felt isolated and 35% felt angry or frustrated. I mean, this can really impact the quality of life of a person. And, you know, we're talking about caregiving in this country and mental health in this country. Uh, A diagnosis like this can certainly impact both. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when they talk about the uh, the fearfulness and the isolation, I mean, um, with PAH, which is obviously a chronic disease, and, and many chronic people selling, with, um, sorry, dealing with chronic illnesses, that that feeling of isolation is usually because of. Uh, well, I'll, I'll use my own example if I can, Marine. Uh, you know what? I really don't know from day to day how I'm going to feel. I usually measure what the day is going to be like by how I feel when I get up. You know, do I have a migraine when I get up? Again, is it a bad migraine? Is my fatigue level at such a point that, you know what, I don't even want to get out of bed for a few hours? Uh, That type of thing. And so where it becomes isolating is sometimes, I hate to use the word um, undependable, but Mm -hmm. it kind of kind of comes down to that because I'm not quite sure I want to buy tickets to go see a concert on a Tuesday night 
and I might get up Tuesday and think, oh, man, I can't get out of bed. I feel so bad. And so it, it's oh. tough, and it's tough on the caregivers and everyone around you, but we do the best we can as, as, as a group and try and support our, each other and, and let each other know that it's okay if you have a day where you don't have very many spoons, it's okay. Don't beat yourself up. Uh, well, you sound like a wonderfully optimistic person, and I, I wish you all the best and, and good health and, and a very long life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Maureen. And I, I appreciate you giving us the chance to, uh, to talk about pulmonary hypertension uh, and, and bring it to a wider focus because there could be some folks out there that are experiencing all this stuff, and there's nothing wrong with looking at your, your, uh, your primary health official and, saying, and say, hey, what about pH? and see where that conversation leads. Absolutely. I, you couldn't be more right um, because oftentimes so many tests are done and there's lots of wonder and might, people might be told that it's in their head or whatever, um, but, but you're absolutely right. Maybe it's pH, um, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Thank you so much, Carl, for joining me on the program. Where can people get more information about pH? Well, I, I don't have the, uh, the actual... Uh, website address on me. I hope you do it. If not, you know, if you search out pulmonary arterial hypertension or pH Canada, it'll come up. I believe it's phacanada.org. And there's a ton of information there, not only for patients, but also for, uh, for physicians as well. Absolutely. Thanks again, Carl. All the best to you. Thanks for right now. You know, these days, especially these days, we often wonder about the future. And, you know, we're also wanting to connect spiritually. Well, joining me on the line is internationally acclaimed psychic medium and master coach. Maxine Friend provides channeled psychic readings and spiritual mentorship programs. She's published multiple digital courses to assist her clientele in accessing their energetic ecosystem. And she joins me on the line from Puerto Vallarta. Hello, Maxine. Hi, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you back. You have clients all over the globe. You've been practicing professionally for over 14 years. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. And um, I'm very interested in your channeled psychic readings, if I'd love you to tell me about those, and also the, the spiritual mentorship program. So what exactly is a channeled psychic reading? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I've been doing this for 14 years, and I still don't completely understand the metrics of energy and how it works exactly, but the channeling process is that you open yourself up to whatever messages come in, and you just, without judging those messages, Share them with the person that you're reading. So that's the easiest way to explain it, even though it sounds a little bit, I guess, not very quantifiable, but uh, we're just reading energy. So it's not, you know, magic or anything like that. And uh, yeah, it it continues to, you know, be an astounding process even after 14 years. Well, my next question, my next obvious question would be, did you get any messages about me in the last minute? Because <laughs> no. <laughs> it's all about me. Is that how no, it works? I, Is that you're talking with somebody and you get a message about them? or No, not typically. Uh, I'm very respectful of people's energies. You never know what the person's belief system is. Mm-hmm. You're never quite sure like what 
you know, like what the what their belief system is. So I typically, unless I'm doing actual readings with the clients with their permission, then I open mm-hmm. myself up to that channel. Oh, um, oh so, I see. Yeah. So it's like having permission first. It's kind of part of the ethics I teach in spiritual mentoring. Right. Very interesting. I mean, I just want to say you, you do have my permission. I am very interested in this. <laughs> and and this, is, this is definitely part of my belief system, but I totally understand if you don't want to um, carry on with that. Um, but you could tell me if it's good or bad. I'm kidding. A- anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about spiritual mentorship programs. Well, it's uh, taken me a few years to, to put this together. Uh, it's been a huge request of my clients, from, and I've been actually mentoring for many years now. Uh, but I've just uh, officially completed uh, my first digital product last year, and I've been teaching it on and off now for the last two years, I guess, or a year and a half. Um, So I'm launching again June 10th. It's an eight-week intensive live-led program that basically covers, you know, if you're going through any kind of spiritual activity that you don't quite understand, if you're experiencing phenomenon for the first time, or you're just looking to enhance your abilities, or even a lot of people come because they just want to get a handle on what they're experiencing and, and sort of create some framework around it. Well, what is spiritual activity and, and also what is phenomenon? I mean, I, I'm not sure I've experienced either one, but I don't know exactly what they are, to be truthful. Yeah, I'm happy to provide you with some examples. Um, so, for example, today we have a full moon eclipse happening. So a lot of us can start to feel lower energy or we can feel, you know, the energy of the moon, which can make us fatigued or some people don't sleep at night. But um, ultimately, we're affected by energy, whether it be nature's cycles or the energies of other people. So when you start to tap into that more and become more sensitive to other people's energy, sometimes it just takes some fine-tuning in order how to record those messages and how to decipher them and work with them. My esteemed guest is Maxine Friend. She is a psychic medium, spiritual mentor, and master coach. Thanks for staying with me on the line, Maxine. I appreciate it. Thank you so much again for having me. You're very welcome. All right, so we were talking about spiritual experiences. Uh, how would somebody know that they were having a spiritual experience? Oh, there's so many ways that can manifest. Uh, Some people will have um, an experience after a loved one has passed away, such as the lights flickering or a song coming on that their loved one really appreciated, or they'll start seeing what appears to them as a series of coincidences that they cannot ignore. So those are some basic examples. And of course, there's all different kinds that, you know, people experience, but those would be some examples. And so we hear people talk about that. Uh, a friend of mine's husband died, and on the way home from the hospital, she heard on the radio his favorite song came on. Um, as soon as, practically as soon as she uh, turned the car on to drive home, um, do people? You know, sometimes people think um, those things can't happen. You know, or they think people are crazy if they say, you know, 
these birds flew into my backyard and they remind me of my uh, mother, for example, or um, is it, is it the believer? You know, does that have something to do with it? You know, it's, that's such a valid point because so many people don't believe until they lose someone and go through something tragic like the loss of a loved one or a parent. And when they start to see these things happening, you know, maybe once or twice it happens, they can dismiss it. But then after that, uh, it keeps happening and they can no longer deny that this feels maybe like a sign or a symbol to their love from their loved one. And of course, as a result, that can bring great comfort depending on what you believe. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly can. I mean, it's, it's very comforting to know because grief is so, uh, it, it can be debilitating. Uh, it can come and go. It can be long lasting. It's such a process, such a painful process, but it is some measure of comfort to know that somebody is looking out for you or perhaps guiding you or helping you uh, through something. You know, I mean, I have to say, sometimes I, I think that myself. You talked about phenomenon. What, what exactly is phenomenon in your world? Phenomenon is anything outside of scientific ex- explanation as far as I'm concerned. So phenomenon can be, like I mentioned, light flickering or uh, sometimes electronics will malfunction. That's a classic one. Um, or there's just all kinds of things that, that can take place. Some people will have very profound dreams where they feel that their loved one is coming to visit or they'll have a dream that's premonitory. So that means that it hasn't happened yet. And then in the next few days, what they dreamt actually comes to fruition. So that would be very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, it's interesting, right. isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, you know, a couple of things that you said, you said that... Um, what did you say about the moon? <laughs> Something about the moon. I always, I oh, just know a... Mercury is in retrograde sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it is right now, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. That explains it. it I'm gonna... <laughs> yeah. The day and... I had. Uh... <laughs> and uh... <laughs> absolutely. But we're having a full moon uh, eclipse. Oh, yes. So eclipses are typically oh, right. very strong energies that can lead to profound change. And that energy can be felt upwards of six months past the date of an eclipse. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, I have to say, and you mentioned that it can lead to fatigue. And, uh, you know, I actually took a two hour nap before the show. And I and I was thinking, wow, this is just so strange. I feel like, you know, I had great sleep last night. I didn't really get up that early. Um, I haven't had that busy of a day, you know, did a bit of exercise. And then all of a sudden, I just thought, you know what? I feel like I'm going to fall asleep here. I'm going to go take a nap. And I slept for two hours. Um, but if you think about, yeah, it's, I was fatigued as well today. Um, and typically I'm pretty high energy. But if you think about, you know, how the moon affects the tides and women's cycles mm-hmm. and the amount of water content in our bodies, we are bound to feel that ecliptic energy when the, the moon is particularly close to the earth. We can feel that energetic pull. And I'm sure you know, as you're in your ex- medical experience, that the hospitals tend to be a little busier during a full moon. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. More babies are born. And yes, and it's also, it's not just busier in the hospital. It's just, um, it's just, it's, it's a phenomenon <laughs> happening on every single ward. You know, it's just, they typically 
bad nights, you know, when there's a, when there's a full moon. So definitely I can, um, scientifically, (laughs) I can validate that for you. Um, that is for sure. Uh, but yeah, it was interesting because I thought I'm, my, you know, definitely my bed was pulling me <laughs> today, <laughs> which is, you know, such a strange time of day too, because uh, the show airs 8 p.m. Pacific time. And, uh, um, you know, it was like five o'clock. It's like, I'm going to take a nap. That's very strange. But yeah, now I know why. Um, looking forward to going to bed after this too. My bed is pulling me once again. <laughs> Um, so you're also, you're also a coach. Um, and what are the types of clients that you have who would come to see you and, and what kinds of issues would they have? If I'm being presumptuous, I, I, I apologize, but are they people who have issues that, that come to see you? Well, I mean, everybody has issues. I mean, that's the truth. Uh, no really? one's immune to that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you're kidding me. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I know. Um, I no kidding. Of, I, I would probably say, I mean, I get, I've had anything from doctors to CEOs of huge companies and corporations to massage therapists or, or fellow psychics. Um, and, and it's for a variety of reasons. So uh, it really varies. And what would some of those of, reasons, what would some of those reasons be with the CEOs who have made significantly more money, like more billions and billions more than their workers have a little guilt. Is that why they might come to see you? (laughs) Please tell me yes. Uh, No. um, You know, what, what would be some of the reasons that they would come to, to visit you? uh, you. For the higher profile clients, um, there's a lot of, uh, I've got one client in particular who worries about the board of directors for the foundation they run. Um, anywhere from a lot of, you know, someone who wants to raise capital for a good cause, uh, or they're looking, uh, a lot of people now, if you're looking at the current trends that might be interesting for your audience, a lot of people are leaving their jobs and starting something new, or they're deciding to retire early, you know, cash in, um, decide to uh, live the life that they've been intending for retirement today. So that's a huge mm-hmm. uh, trend that, that I've been experiencing with clients. You know, it's kind of that live for today. Don't save up and wait, but do it now. That's a huge one for many, many oh, ab- folks. Absolutely. Live, live for the moment. I'm a firm believer in that. I, I saw something about the transfer of wealth. There was um, there's some, you know, information in the news recently, articles about that. I just think transfer of wealth. I'm spending every single cent transferring nothing. <laughs> I mean, you might as well enjoy life. Um, you know, it's uh, this, but a lot of people worry about that. A lot of people have those worries. They want to make sure that they're able to do that. But, you know, they forget that uh, the most important time is now and, and living in the yeah. moment. And it's, it's relationships and it's experiences that are important in life versus and it's happiness versus chasing the almighty dollar. I mean, I think a lot of people feel that money will buy them happiness, but but we know for certain that money makes life easier. That's for sure, but it doesn't buy happiness. Um, so yes, it's you yes. know, energy. Money is is just energy, and um, what I always uh, work with my clients is the balance between what we call the four pillars of currency, which is 
of course, money is just a tool. It's a means for exchange. But then the ultimate currency is love. I mean, if you think about when we cross over, what matters? It matters how much we were loved and how much we loved others. It's the only currency that continues to exist on beyond our physical body, at least in my line of work. And, of course, there's time, right? There's time, Uh and then there's the passion, the bandwidth of energy we put into those things, which can also be uh, expressed as purpose. And so with those four pillars, you want to have those balanced out. You were asking about the coaching work. This is a bit of that. Uh Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And I imagine people would come to you out of balance or or imbalanced, you know, inappropriate or not inappropriate, but priorities that are, you know, kind of mixed up or a little bit messed up um, and and getting sorted out. Yeah. And what are some of the strategies that that you would bestow upon people or clients? Strategy. Well, it would depend on the individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on the individual. Um, A lot of times people need to be reminded of their natural skills and abilities. You know, see a lot of clients or coaching clients that they want to go back to school or they feel that they need to get some extra letters behind their name. But really, it's just a cover up for to hide the fact that they're ready now. Like, it's like, oh, maybe I'll use this education as a validation tool to add that education to feel good enough to go into that field of work. And so a lot of the strategy sometimes has to do with them realizing sometimes you need extra education and there's nothing wrong with that. And other times you're just delaying or seeking outer validation to get the work doing that you want to get done. So sometimes it's unearthing and figuring out is extra education required or are you ready today? And if so, what steps can you take in order to get there sooner? No, that's very interesting because oftentimes, I mean, I, I have to admit that I get a little bit of annoyed of some people online who lack education or training in particular areas, and then, especially in the medical field, and are dispensing advice that may or may not be accurate and may be taken out of context and also may not be complete uh, and leading people astray. And oftentimes it's associated with selling products to build the immune system, for example, Uh, or when, when I think actually, you know, having more of a spiritual life might help one's immune system because they would be less stressed versus buying some product. But we're such a, you know, a, a quick fix society. We want the pill to make everything better. Um, but I do get, I have to say, I get frustrated, you know, with people dispensing advice who lack, lack the training. But I, I hear you saying that sometimes no, there you're are people. Absolutely, yes, you are absolutely correct. And it happens in my community, which, by the way, is a highly unregulated industry. But uh-huh. I will see some of my peers describe themselves as counselors or worse uh-huh. yet, uh, something even more offensive like shaman which is so offensive to, to the, the generations and years it takes to even get that status. Um, so it is very interesting um, how people will, you know, dispense advice with zero experience. So I myself am extremely careful how I describe myself because I do not, I'm not a counselor and I have no business 
saying that. I, I don't have that education, so I have no right to. And, and also sometimes in this uh, field of work, you have to get to the place where you have to understand when it's important to pass off uh, to someone else who might be more qualified to assist that client in question. So you have to know when to step away and say, you need a proper doctor or you will require some counseling or whatever it is they require and to be the person to provide them with those resources if necessary. You couldn't be more correct. Maxine, you're a delight to have on the program. Love to get you back sometime. It's been wonderful to chat with you. Oh, thank you so much, Maureen. Always a pleasure. You're very welcome. Where can people learn more about your work, Maxine? Uh, I have a website. Uh, It's maxinefriend.com. And like I said, I've got an a eight-week live spiritual mentoring program debuting June 10th. Wonderful. Well, best of luck to you with that. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.